Camping from your motorcycle can be one of the most rewarding things you can do on two wheels. But for the uninitiated, it can be daunting to try and figure out what you should be taking and then trying to fit all that into a very limited space that we have on our bikes. So today we're going to talk about the basics of moto camping, tips on how to get started, what's important, what's not, and how to do it without getting overwhelmed. And then, according to Ben Williams, there's some common mistakes that campers make. Five, in fact. All that and more coming up. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Vince. Simon Pavey. Bill Bragoo. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Sean Thomas. And this is Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Googletech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear, greenchiliadv.com. My name is Benjamin Williams. I'm from Archdale, North Carolina, and I'm the owner of Moto Camp Nerd. So, motorcycling, wh- wh- where do you get into motorcycling? Oh, so um, my story starts with, of course, the parents that didn't want anybody, you know, on two wheels because motorcycles were dangerous. Um, no dirt bikes, no nothing. So, I didn't actually start riding until 2012. And I always had a fascination with motorcycles anyway. And I mean, I was a big uh, biker, you know, mountain biker and kind of just rode the bikes around with kids and stuff growing up. And it just appealed to me. So uh, when I was, I think, let's say 2012, I started, I took the uh, motorcycle safety course and got an old Yamaha. Uh, I ended up wrenching on it more than actually working or riding it. Um, Cause it was kind of a, it wasn't really a basket case. It just, it just didn't run right. Um, and I was mechanically savvy and, you know, I didn't have a lot of money. So started with that, uh, eventually did get a Suzuki Savage that ran really well. And that's really when the miles started kind of racking up and going on longer rides and actually getting experience riding. Do you start camping on that bike? I did. Um, so I started riding in 2012 and then 2013, uh, a group of friends and I got together and did a four day, three night weekend camping trip. Uh, unfortunately, one of our friends was unable to ride at that time. So he just kind of hung out in the back with a, uh, his minivan and we threw all of our gear in there. So this wasn't really a, you know, traditional motorcycle camping where you throw all the gear on the bike trip, but it was our, our very first, you know, none of us had done this before. So this is our first start in getting into it. And, um, we learned a lot from that trip <laughs> as far as, you know, what you should and shouldn't bring. And, you know, most of us, we were on vintage bikes, uh, originally came from like a vintage cafe racer kind of club. And we had broke out from those 
group of people because we wanted to do longer trips and go further out. So we were, you know, we're centrally located in North Carolina and we went up into the Smoky Mountains and uh, it was a, like I said, it was a big learning curve just because of the temperature differences and the gear that we had. And like I said, this was very minimalistic um, jeans, uh, not even leather gloves, not even a full face helmet. And we just kind of went out and just did it. Hmm. That was 2013, I guess you're saying. And you've progressed into becoming extremely interested in camping so much so that you actually opened a store selling camping gear specifically for motorcycling, which is of course why I asked you to come on and talk about this today. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, we all were like, Hey, let's try this idea. So we, we went on this first camping trip and I think it sparked something in everybody. It was like, Oh, this is like awesome. This is a lot of fun, like going out and getting out there and just really getting away from the local area and exploring and getting out in the woods and camping. And, you know, I'd been camping a few times as a kid, but, um, my family wasn't really big in the outdoors. So I'd been camping, you know, maybe a handful of times as a kid, I did Boy Scouts a little bit, but it only lasted like a year, if that. And so this was just another opportunity to get out into the outdoors for me. Mm-hmm. And go ahead. We're going to ask no, something. No, go ahead. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and so it really intrigued us. And it just, like I said, it kind of sparked that excitement. And we uh, we kind of ran with it. And it, it, of course, you start getting into the camping gear uh, rabbit hole because you know you're trying to pack small on the bike and you're trying to to find good gear and um, uh, of course at this time you know I'm I'm still kind of broke and trying to make it work with what I've got mm-hmm. and you know so you could go on any kind of adventure with whatever gear you want it just depends on how comfortable you're really going to be at the end of the day because you know, if you get some cheaper gear and I did, I started out with Walmart camping gear. I had a, uh, Ozark trails tent that I slept in caddy corner. Cause I think it was the scout tent. I'm only five foot five. So I could fit in like the little kid scout tent caddy corner. <laughs> and then, that's, that's a great uh, money savings. Like, like being short or shorter, I guess you could say that's a huge money savings right there. Absolutely. I mean, I think it was like maybe a $50 tent. Um, the sleeping bag I got was like a really cheap down sleeping bag that it was supposed to be rated to 30 degrees, but it absolutely wasn't because I froze that, that first night and the, um, I didn't have a pillow because everybody was like, Oh, don't take a pillow. Just roll up your sweatshirt. Uh, that was, that was a miserable idea. (laughs) I'll never do that again. (laughs) And, um, and so, yeah, from there, it just kind of grew year after year and, I realized it was really difficult hunting for camping gear because I think me and a lot of other riders like to go out and do their research and really research their bikes and their gear. And, you know, I'd spend hours online searching for what sleeping bag or pad or tent packs the best and what situations it works for. And so, you know, during the pandemic in 2020, Um, I had some free time and was able to put together this idea of like, well, can we actually do this? Can we put all of it in one place together? So that way people don't have to do, I encourage people to do their research, but they don't have to do as much painstaking searching the web by going all over the place. They can go to one place and actually find a lot of gear that we've picked out 
and put together as some of the better camping options for motorcycle camping. Yeah. The other thing is, is when it comes to motorcycle camping is there doesn't seem in in my mind of what I've seen to be really good information out there that's concise about motorcycle specific camping. Like, like if you go into a, an outdoor store and say, I'm camping by motorcycle, they don't have a clue. They have no idea. They're not going to say, oh, are you adventure riding or are you riding a cruiser? They don't, they don't know to ask that. And why should they, right? Because they don't deal with it. You know, so it, it is difficult to figure out what gear. What we're going to do today is we're going to talk about a bunch of things that are going to narrow things down for them, for people to um, who haven't camped before, maybe, you know, interested in, in camping better using both of our experience. Because uh, I also have sort of an extensive camping background. Uh, I started doing solo backpacking overnight trips when I was about 12 or 13 years old. <laughs> I, I convinced my friends to go with me and they would have to lie to their parents and say they were staying over at my house because they weren't allowed to go <laughs> on a trip like this. But since we started, it was horrible. Like the, the camping was uh, just a nightmare. I made, you know, every mistake taking canned foods and the cast iron frying pan and things like that. I remember my pack being so heavy that I would literally stomp along and could hardly hold the pack up. And taking it, putting it on and off was something that I could barely do. It was, uh, it was something else. But, but more recently, you know, my wife and I spent uh, over 20 years running in a wilderness adventure tour company where we did uh, canoeing and, and tons of sea kayaking, a lot of sea kayaking with killer whales and designed our, our guide training program where we train the guides each season, uh, not to mention camping by from my motorcycle. I, I mean, I just love camping. Like when you said that about uh, camping was so great. I think camping, like I'm, I'm up for camping anyway at all. I just absolutely love it. It's something that I, that I've always loved to do. So, um, between the two of us, we, we should be able to come up with a, a bunch of things using our experience and, and throwing this in here. And I love the fact that you are so in tune with the, the latest gear that's out there. So I thought what we should do here, Ben, is, is maybe start with the style of camping because that's going to make a big difference, right? Of, of where they're choosing to camp. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So typically the, the two most common camping options are commercial or like the private campgrounds. And we're talking like KOAs or, or family-owned mom-and-pop campgrounds that are established, um, sometimes referred to the front country camping. Even like national parks and state parks have all of these campgrounds with plenty of amenities and, uh, and RV parks. Those are all options. And then the other camping would be like your dispersed or your wild camping, where you're literally just going out somewhere and finding a random place in the woods that you're allowed to camp and pitching a tent and enjoying the uh, outdoors. Now with the, the commercial style that offers a lot of latitude for someone camping, probably that's a good spot to start because there's amenities there often, not all of them, but often there's amenities there to some degree. Oh yeah, definitely. And I, and I always recommend um, for somebody who's first time camping, it's always better to go. I mean, unless you've got a ton of friends that you're going with and they're experienced and they're going to help you along the way. If you're either going by yourself or with one other person who's never been camping before, I usually recommend going to an established campground. Take the bare necessities on your first trip and go to the campground, set it up and just enjoy it and figure out what works for you because everybody's style of camping is different. You know, everybody, some people want to camp because it's a cheaper alternative to hotels and some people actually want to get out and enjoy the outdoors. And so getting out to an established campground will at least keep you minimalistic to get your first night under your belt. And you'll still have, like you said, you've got like a bathroom, 
Um, most of them have a shower house or bathhouse, so you can actually clean up if you feel like you're that dirty over one night that you can go and, and clean up. Um, or maybe if just the type to. that loves a shower. And, you know, you made a really good point there, though. It's saying that some people are looking to just get a cheaper than hotel room space to stay and other people are enjoying the camping. I kind of think they'll be converted once they go and they spend some time camping. But but that's a really good point because to some, it's just a means to an end. It's not a, a glorious I'm going camping thing. It's just I'm saving money. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely like the iron butt rides and the long haul rides and it's a good cheap alternative, you know, and they'll, they'll go to camp and they'll, they'll pitch a tent and they'll either get food on the way to camp or they'll have like a, a dehydrated meal or something and they just make it quick and then they're in and they're out. Right. Um, my personal style, I mean, I enjoy the outdoors. It's very Zen for me. So when we go camping, I really get into cooking outside and just enjoying being in the moment. And so uh, even if it is front country or back country camping, you know, we've been in, you know, some campgrounds before that are completely packed, but it's still enjoyable because, well, we try to find the ones that are kind of out in the backwoods and not so um, populated right. <laughs> or commercialized. That's a good tip. Now, any other tips for commercial camping? Like some of them are just fields, you know, almost fields from what I've seen. And other ones have the nice campsites. You mentioned like your national forest and things like that. They tend to have much nicer campsites. Do you have any tips for finding a spot in these places? So um, for established campgrounds, most of the time you can go on Google and search for, you know, any of the commercial ones. Like I said, the big ones are like KOAs a thousand trails, but those are going to be more typically your RV parks. You can go to your state and the national forest service and find campgrounds in those areas. And those are going to be again, established campgrounds. Um, what is the website? Recreation.gov, I believe is where you can go. And then you will actually be able to find locally all of the, the, the resources for, for campgrounds. Um, and then you can look and each one will have their own amenities listed out. And, kind of figure out what you actually need. Some will have bathhouses, some won't have bathhouses, but most of them will have an established parking area with a tent space. And that way you're able to kind of, you don't have to guess um, where you're going and it, it'll be a, a marked camping site. Hmm. Now here in North Carolina and kind of in the Appalachian area, we have a specialty with motorcycle camping motorcycle only campgrounds. Oh, wow. Um, and there's a plethora of them. And I do actually have a list on the website for it um, with all the campgrounds that we know of in the United States that are either motorcycle only or extremely motorcycle friendly. And these are kind of like you were saying, where you've got a field and it's that almost that festival style of camping. Yeah. So you go to this campground and it's usually at somebody's house that they've just got a lot of acreage that they were able to establish and uh, kind of get like a nice flat area. And some of them have cabins, some of them have bathhouses and you can go out there. It's, you know, maybe 20 bucks, 15, 20, $25 a night. And it's a whole motorcycle community of people. I mean, the, the owners are motorcycle riders. Everybody coming there is on a motorcycle and you don't have to worry about RVs. You don't have to worry about other car campers. It's just you and a bunch of other riders at a campground. Um, and I find those the most warming and welcoming just because you're in your own group of people. 
And so, you know, everybody's there for the same common reason. Is that a local term? You're saying bathhouses? I guess so. <laughs> do you, do you guys, do you, does everyone call it that? I, I have a different vision when I think of bathhouses. Yeah. Uh, well, and I know uh, bathhouse, I guess, used to be a term that's different. Um, I know yeah. around here they refer to it as a bathhouse or... I don't know. That's all I've ever referred oh, to. It as yeah, showers. I think yeah. it is what, and anyway, and I was going to mention shower house, shower house. Yeah. <laughs> or something like that. Well, we're, we're talking mainly about North America here as far as the commercial camping grounds go. Yes. Yeah. That's here in North America. Yeah. What you're saying is looking up ahead of time and checking what amenities they have can certainly make it better for somebody who's just trying to avoid the cost of the hotel or motel and still looking for a shower and, and maybe other amenities. Wild camping is something completely different. The first thing with this is you're going to have to figure out where you're wild camping. And, and you did, you said a key thing there. You said um, places you're allowed to camp. So do you have a method for finding that as opposed to what would often be referred to as stealth camping, where you might just camp, I don't know, off of a road or something like that to try and get out of the way and, and basically get a night's sleep? Yeah. So for here in the East Coast, um, and most people on the East Coast know this, and especially in like the Appalachian, North Carolina area, it's very popular. Uh, the Smoky Mountains is one of the most popular national forests. And so it's becoming more and more difficult to get into these forest service roads that have little pullouts with camping to just pull off the side of the road and camp. Is this like um, an official site or, or semi-official site? It's, um, it, they call it dispersed camping and it's like a semi-official site. So there's. So you're allowed to camp in the area and basically other people have used it. So it kind of looks like a campsite. Yes. But because of, especially since COVID, um, and the pandemic where everybody's getting outdoors more, the explosion over in, you know, the Appalachian area has been so much that they've actually had to reduce how much, um, area is used for dispersed camping. And so some areas that were allowed for dispersed camping have been completely trashed or have been just uh, run over so much that they've had to restrict people from camping in certain areas just so that way the foliage and everything kind of grows back. Mm, um, yeah. And and it's new people going out and not understanding, you know, what all you need to do to make sure you don't, you know, tear up the, the grass and tear up all the property and tear up all the, the foliage and such. But so you have to go to the national forest website and they will have a area designated on where you're allowed to go disperse camping. Now I know out West where you've got the BLM lands, which is the Bureau of land management. It's kind of wide open and it's a lot of desert out there. Right. So you can go out there and, and I, I've not been out there to go camping. This is just from what other people have worked with me and talked to me and, and, you know, planning trips and such have talked about where it's just so much easier to go out there because it's just kind of open and there's, there's not a lot of people out there and there's a lot of land out there. So it's, you kind of get pick of the litter out there because it's just so vast <laughs> and wide open, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, compared to out here where it's really condensed and crowded on the East coast. And so finding, um, apps, I've used apps like I overlander, um, and there's several different websites you can go on and there's people who have found these little dispersed camping areas that are, that are known good. And they've got like dates and timelines on when the last time they camped there. So, you know, it's still a legitimate area that you can go and camp and not get in trouble with. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's always a good idea to check in with the the park ranger to make sure that you're okay to camp in that area. Uh, and some of these, like I said, for the East Coast, because it's becoming so crowded, some of them you actually have to have a permit and it's free. You just have to go register and say, hey, I'm going to be camping here. And your permit's only good for three days. Oh, I see. Yeah, I'm, I have sort of always mixed feelings about these apps that post campsites on sign, uh, online rather, because quite often you, you find that places are overrun that certainly can't handle the traffic. You know, they might be a little tiny spot that somebody's found somewhere that's so rarely used. It's worked for years and years and years. All of a sudden it's posted online and everyone who's traveling anywhere ends up going there. And, and I know we've experienced it before places that we've used where, I mean, it was very rare. You saw another person that w- was camped there and all of a sudden you see a lineup of vehicles and they're camped all over the place. So I, I always mm-hmm. hesitate. So I, I, I would just ask that people think twice before you go posting something, a nice little spot, look at it. Is it something that can really handle a lot of traffic? Because anything that's posted online is going to handle a ton of traffic. Yeah, absolutely. And, and a good thing to keep in mind is the, the leave no trace. And for us, um, tread lightly are two organizations out there that are very good. They have a lot of information about what you should and shouldn't do. Um, you know, leave, leave no traces for the camping kind of outdoors and making sure that we're not overly stimulating those areas. Like you said, where it's getting flooded and overly crowded and tread lightly for those who are riding on off highway vehicle routes and trails and such, Mm -hmm. and making sure that we're keeping those maintained and we're not getting kicked out of those areas. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point uh, for mentioning those. The thing is, you have to remember, you're not the only person that's going to use the area. Quite often people think if they go camping, they go into an area. If you're not used to it, it may look like it's not used, but when you're used to the outdoors, you can see it's very well used. You have to keep that in mind. No matter where you're going, you're not the only person that's going to use it. And I think sometimes people have that mentality and that's why things get trashed. I was going to talk about um, wild camping. And I was going to say that we, we should actually go through sort of a, a list of just very quickly here of things about wild camping. And one I I was going to say is choosing a location. So when it comes to wild camping, you want to assess the spot you're going to choose before you go throwing your tent in there and and considering it home for the night. There's a couple of things you want to do. One, you want to camp in a dry spot, you know, so you're going to look for a spot that, um, well, if you look at some of the trees, sometimes there's trees that are really attracted to moist areas. Generally, a pine or coniferous forest is drier than a deciduous forest. That's one thing to keep in mind. Moss, for instance, moss is very soft to walk on. Seems like an ideal thing to set your tent up on. But when it rains, that just becomes a water sponge. You want to stay away from that. Sand, sand is beautiful to walk on. Seems like a cool spot to set up a tent, but it gets everywhere and it will jam zippers. It will get in your sleeping bag. So if you're going to do it, just, you know, suffer with the consequences and realize that you're going to have to to deal with that grit getting in everywhere. And it does. Rivers, rivers can rise. Dry river beds are just stupid. (laughs) But but a real important thing, and my one little tip I was going to throw in here for choosing your location is look up often you'll find that there's a dead branch that's hung up in another branch of a tree or something like that. That is the last thing you want to be under. And it can look small when it's way up in a tree, but the last thing you want to be under if the the wind comes up. Did, did, did I miss anything as far as choosing a location there? No, no, you nailed it. And I'm glad you brought it up because there's been, even recently, there's been several times that I just get excited pulling into a campground and particularly in a established one that we've been to for like a state park. And you have to put your tent on a certain pad or area and 
keeping in mind to look up because I've even forgot to look up. And in the middle of the night, it starts, you know, the wind starts howling. And I got out of the tent and looked up because I was like trying to check out and make sure. Cause I forgot. I yeah. never looked up. I never checked to see if there's any of these branches. Cause I could hear the branches falling around us in the middle of the night. And I'm like, okay, are we going to be okay? Are we going to have a branch fall on our tent? You oh, know, yeah. because you don't have the the opportunity. Um, but no, you nailed it. You nailed it for, for picking out a spot. And, and the one thing too, I would always recommend is when you're setting up your tent to make sure if you, cause you're not always going to find a perfectly level spot, but if you have to have an unlevel spot, keep your head elevated slightly. Mm, good tip. Yeah, that's right. Because I've slept, um, the wrong way before with my feet up and it makes the worst night of sleep because all the blood rushes to your head and you realize it about four o'clock in the morning and you're miserable. Yep. Or you wake up with a headache, stuffy and, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, no, that, yeah. that's really good. I was going to mention shelter as well. The thing with the shelter is very basically you're going to have to choose some sort of tent and I would definitely recommend some sort of tarp. The tarp is very, very important. It's used for so many things, including covering your tent, but that's really important. Do you have some tips for, for choosing a tent for motorcycling? For first timers, I usually recommend that people go for like a freestanding tent just because it's easy to set up. And when I say freestanding, I mean, typically they have like an X pattern where you put the poles in the tent and the tent stands up and you can actually pick it up and walk around with the tent and move it if you need to. And that's just a good way to get into camping and get into a tent um, without having to to figure out all the nuances of setting up something like a backpacking tent, which would use either like trekking poles or even auxiliary poles that you'd have to stake out. And you, you mentioned about being able to pick up the tent and walk around with it. Most tents nowadays, good quality tents, better quality tents are made with a sort of a tub style design, which means the floor is like a tub. It goes up several inches on the side, including the front where you crawl out. And if you get a bunch of junk in there, like leaves and, and, and bits of debris in your tent, one of the easiest ways I find to clean it out is take your fly off then pick the tent up, open the door, rather the front door, pick the tent up and shake it out. <laughs> there, you, there it is. It's swept out and you save taking any sort of whisk or something that car campers often have. Absolutely. And and I've done that before. And especially um, out here, it's really humid. So in the mornings, you'll have a lot of the moisture on the bottom of the tent. And it's great because the freestanding tent, I can actually flip it upside down and put it like bottom up and let the sun kind of soak it a little bit yeah. to dry out the bottom. Yep. Yep. That's, no, that's great. And uh, now for a tarp, the tarp, you can get some very lightweight silicone tarps for camping and it's, it's just such a handy tool because you can set it up without the tent. You can set it up to work on your bike. You can set it up if it starts to pour rain. The tent and the tarp don't really matter unless it rains. Bugs might bother you with, with sleeping under the stars, but some people like to do that. I like to do that sometimes. But if it rains, that's when the tarp and the tent definitely come in and are a must. I've always used like a cheap tarp because I've had the space to spare. <laughs> and... So I've always just grabbed whatever tarp I could from either the hardware store. Um, I've, I've used maybe one, a true, I should say, backpacking style tarp before. Um, and it was a cheaper one. And the, the wind kind of got it and ripped it up and tore it up. So it didn't, you know, mm. mistake on my part uh, for, for getting something that was cheaper. That's um, the downside. Yeah. But 
but I've always used it um, for something great to lay on if you're working on the bike or to cover yourself up or cover up the bike. And it's an accessory piece. Um, and I've luckily, I guess, fingers crossed, never had to be in a, a uh, rainstorm enough to use or need a tarp to cover the tent. So usually the rain fly for me has been um, enough, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the and if you have a good quality tent, yeah, it, the the fly will usually suffice in some real hard weather. But to extend your area when it's really pouring, especially if it's pouring for very long, especially with all of our motorcycle gear, the tarp can be very handy to extend that. You mentioned earlier about you can camp with any gear. It it just it depends on how comfortable you are, which I think is a really good point. So I mean, you don't need the best gear. Obviously, you can go out with just about anything. It's just how comfortable you're going to be. The tarp is a very handy thing to do. What I do for for what you're talking about for working on the on the motorcycle, I have a small one, just one of those cheap tarps you're talking about from the the hardware store that I keep rolled up on the bike. That's for throwing down on the ground for if I have to lay on it or anything like that. You don't want to do that with an expensive silicone tarp. Or, or some sort of lightweight tarp that you're using because you're bound to get holes in it. You're guaranteed to get holes in it because as soon as you push down on it, it's going to poke up through the through the tent all oh, yeah. the, everywhere you kneel and whatnot. So uh, avoid that one. The, the other thing I was going to mention is sleeping comfort. You're going to have to have something to sleep in. And I'm just talking basics here. I'm going to throw in here a plug for, for one of our advertisers, Pearly Possum, Pearly's Possum Socks. I wear them in the summertime as well. So they are fantastic for keeping a pair to sleep in if you're in cooler weather, but, um, some sort of warm sleeping bag. I imagine you stock sleeping bags in your store. Oh yeah. We got a plethora of sleeping bags. Yeah. All, <laughs> all like lightweight compressible type bags. Yeah. Yeah. We carry a, a wide range from, you know, entry level synthetic bags all the way up to, you know, the nice down ultralight, uh, bags and quilts. Yeah. Down is great. Down's like really the ultimate, unless you're in a wet climate. If you're on the West Coast or something like that, I know some of the bags are, are coming with um, sort of a, a water resistant liner or waterproof liner underneath the cover or, or possibly the cover itself, but it's always a risk. And, and I've heard that a lot lately with the technology advances and the down treatment. Obviously, I'm not out West, so I don't know how wet, but here on the East Coast, with it being really humid down in North Carolina, and then, you know, sweating in the middle of summer in the bag, there's still a lot of that moisture buildup. And I personally have not had a lot of issues with the newer bags that have the down or the treated down. Um, it's like a hydrophobic down oh, where wow. it's clumping or drying out. And even the exterior of the bag has the the DWR, the durable water repellent. And so, I mean... I have not personally taken a bag and soaked it into a creek, but I've seen other people take a jacket or a bag that's down and treated and soak it into a creek before and been able to pull it out. And it, it was not clumped up. It didn't clump up and it didn't have an issue um, keeping them warm, you know, as a survival moment. Mm, Now in the long run, of course, when you get home, it's going to be wet. You're going to have moisture in there and you're going to need to air it out. And you'll probably want to throw it into like, you know, a tumble dryer or something to get it, to help it, you know, stay lofted. Um, But I think with technology and where everything's been going lately, it's not major issue as far as, I guess, like I said, with the down drying out and the down clumping. And I don't want to say it's an old school thought that, you know, down is not great to have, 
Oh, well, it is. <laughs> no, it is because it, it comes from many years ago. With, with it. Like I actually have a down sleeping bag. This is an ultra lightweight one. There's no insulation on the back because when you lay in a sleeping bag, you compress the back insulation and it really does very little anyway. It's the sleeping mat that really keeps you warm. And you know, I'm sure you already know that. So this sleeping bag I have is just a sheet on the back and the insulation's on the top. So it's almost like a blanket really made into a bag and it's down and I've used it for years and I've used it on the coast as well, but I'm very, very careful about keeping this thing dry. But I wasn't aware of this, this treated down. That sounds really interesting and promising because there's nothing better than down. It's, it's so light. It compresses so small. It, it really makes like for us packing on a motorcycle, it makes it so much easier. I'll never go back to synthetic. I mean, even if it's in a wet climate and I think I'm going to get soaked, I'll still take a down bag <laughs> because I mean, it's just, it packs smaller. It's, it's warming properties are way better. And yeah, it, it's, it's just a great way to go. And if you look at all the big name brands like C to Summit, Big Agnes, um, Nemo, they all do the, the hydrophobic down now in their jackets and in their um, sleeping bags. So, so with hydrophobic down, then I guess technically then it's not going to get wet really. Like, so, so when you soak the bag, it's going to be just like a synthetic bag, then it'll be water on it, maybe even on the, in the insulation, but it won't, it won't lose its loft. That's what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, so the outside is either nylon or polyester and it's coated. So you've got your first layer of water protection there. But then the down itself is also treated. So even if the water gets into the bag and onto the down, the down's hydrophobic and it's still going to prevent itself from clumping together. So technically it should, it should dry out then like it, like you said, you throw in a dryer and it should dry out and everything be fine. Well, I, I got to get a new bag. <laughs> what bag do you have now? It's a um, Sierra Designs bag, but it's got to be 25 years old. Oh Yeah. It's, yeah. it's threadbare on the back and stuff. And I've had to do little repairs to it and stuff like that. But it's, it's a sleeping bag I, I just absolutely love because it's, it's only for summer. And I'll often take, um, if it's into cooler weather or if I'm getting get into elevations, I'll take a, like a fleece liner for it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And the one you're talking about, that's been a very uh, up and coming wanted design where the back of it is kind of like a sheet, right? You were saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No insulation yes. on the back. Yeah, so there's um, Big Agnes and oh, what's the other company out there? Zenbivy. Oh, and there's a couple others I think that are starting to do it now where they actually have the back of the bag is like a sheet. It's just that nylon material and it fits to your sleeping pad and then there's no insulation. And then the top of it is just like a big comforter that zips to it. And so when we go camping, me and Mary, we're sleeping in a double bag. And that's exactly what it is. We use two sleeping pads. It's got like that, that sheet style nylon on the bottom. So we strap it around the two pads and then the top of it just zips up and it is literally like a bed away from home. It is the most yeah. comfortable I've ever been camping. And the, the thing is with the back, if, when you have insulation on two sides, it doubles the thickness of the bag, of course, or, or you could say by removing the, uh, the back, it halves the size of the bag, makes it much easier and much smaller to pack up for motorcycling. And when you lay on it, as I mentioned, when you lay on the, on the sleeping bag itself, you think about it, you just squish it down. Right. And, and really you have little or no insulation on most of the bag, except for little spots where you have little pockets and things like that, which can be nice. It's all mm -hmm. about that sleeping mat. Oh yeah, absolutely. The R value of your pad is the R value is referred to as your resistance, you know? So it's the resistance of heat leaving your body. 
a lot of people say, oh yeah, the cold's creeping in, but you know, a little basic and, you know, heat transfer, you know, you've got convection, um, convection, conduction, and radiation. And, you know, really the sleeping pad is preventing your conduction of your heat going to the ground. So you're not heating up the earth. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because there is no such thing as cold. I mean, we're getting very technical here, but there is no such thing as cold. It's only the absence of heat is what it is. So yeah, you're, it stops the heat from being drawn out of your body. Yeah, sorry, I'm getting into the uh, the nerd part of Motocamp nerd. <laughs> I get I get a little technical on that, and I like to explain I like that. it. That's that's why I asked you to do this. <laughs> that's what I'm looking for. So the sleeping pads. Now I I have older sleeping pads. Again, I haven't bought one for a number of years, but I, I know there's some really good ones out there, and there's some with down in them. Can you talk a little bit about sleeping pads that that you would recommend for motorcycling? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, of course, you've got the three most common type of sleeping pads that you'll see out there are probably the, like the dense foam core sleeping pads. I think a lot of backpackers like using those because they're kind of light, but they're not comfortable at all. It's just kind of like a yoga say, mat. Young backpackers is really the people who use those because <laughs> as you get older, you don't want to foam. Um, I used one on my first camping trip and it was, yeah, it was terrible. Um, and then you've got the insulated, I'm sorry, the, the self-inflating sleeping pads. And I think back in the day, Thermarest made their claim to fame with those. Yeah. And, um, everybody loves them and they were like the best thing ever and they're great. And well, they used to be great because again, advances in technology in these days, the self-inflating pads use the memory foam in the middle or like an expanding foam to help give it that self-inflating term. Um, and then you can top it off if you need to with, you know, some extra air to get it to the firmness or softness that you need. But they tend to pack a little bit larger and they they do have the same uh, R value as like a regular inflated insulated pad. But the air inflated pads now you can get them in non insulated or insulated. They pack so much smaller. They're again with advances in technology and being able to replicate and make the baffles and the air chambers shaped in a specific way. It makes it extremely comfortable. Um, you mentioned some of them are insulated and some of them are not. Yeah. So some of these, um, a lot of the cheaper pads that you'll see on maybe like Amazon, Walmart, they're not insulated, no insulation. It's literally just nylon or polyester Kind of think of the beds that you get for at home, like a inflated yeah, the bed, inflatable you know? mattresses, things. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah same thing. Kind of you know? useless for camping. Yes. So if you're doing, my recommendation is if you're doing any camping under seventy degrees Fahrenheit, you might as well just get an a insulated pad because if you don't have an insulated pad, as we talked about before, that temperature, your body temperature is going to creep out and you're going to get cold. But your recommendation is the insulated type. I always recommend insulated. Like I said, if you're camping anything under 70 degrees Fahrenheit, you might as well just get an insulated pad because at night you're going to get cold. Right. And so the insulation in these pads can be anything from synthetic polyester woven fill with a reflective mylar kind of foil. And some of those you'll, you'll hear, you know, people talk about how loud a pad is because it crinkles and stuff. And those are the ones that have like the mylar and the foil inside of them. Okay. 
The other thing I was going to mention is for sleeping comfort. If you um, if you have a bag that doesn't cover the temperature range quite, you could find yourself going into a little bit cooler weather. You can do a liner, like I said. The and there's a whole bunch of liners you can get, but usually a fleece liner, although fleece tends to pack fairly bulky. So you have to keep that in mind. The other thing I was going to mention, though, for sleeping comfort is if you find yourself getting cold at night, wear socks and a hat. Those two things will make all the difference for keeping warm. Just amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I'm actually glad you brought that up because I do want to mention that all of the sleeping bag ratings are based on you wearing base layers and having a sleeping pad with an R value of at least four. So mm-hmm. when they're doing their t- their testing, and, and you can go on the websites and look at all the different uh, brands, they're going to have like an EN or ISO rating. And that is the rating that says that they actually officially got a third party to test it. And it's, you know, uh, you've got a comfort limit, a lower limit, and then like a survival limit. Survival being you aren't going to die of hypothermia and you may stay alive throughout the night long enough for rescuers to come find your body. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Lower limit is you're going to be cold. Like you're going to have chills at night. You're not going to get hypothermia, but you're going to be cold in your lower limit. And the comfort is going to be what you're going to be sleeping at comfortably without having to worry about being cold. And so most bags, the big name brands and the top tier bags, my general rule of thumb is if it's, Say it's like a, a Sea to Summit bag that's advertised at 15 degrees Fahrenheit. It's probably the lower limit advertised. And I add 10 degrees to that. So you could be comfortable at 25. But again, that is with a sleeping pad with an R value of four or higher. And you have to be wearing your your beanie or your toboggan, your, your long pants, your long sleeve shirt and socks. Mm-hmm. Because that's all of your, your thermal insulating properties because you know you're keeping you're not generating heat you're just keeping heat in the bag right now um that's interesting that they're you mentioned about sleeping bags and the ratings that they have everybody always advertises you know they're i guess the most something can do so they go with the lowest temperature but it'll also depend on the person because some people are just cold sleepers they have um, maybe not as good circulation as other people some people sleep very warm so there's a personal aspect to choosing a bag as well Oh yeah. And then that's one of the, uh, the fun things that we have is selecting bags for customers and talking to everybody, especially first time campers, because typically people at home sleep under a comforter, right? And you're tossing and turning under the, the blanket. Well, when you go camping, if you're in a mummy bag, you don't turn in your mummy bag, you turn with the mummy bag, you know? Um, and so a lot of people, the first time out, they tell me, oh, yeah, I was miserable. I couldn't move. I was, it was too tight. And I'm like, well, are you turning with or in the bag? Well, I couldn't turn in the bag. I'm like, well, you're supposed to turn with the bag. So let's, let's figure out what your sleeping style is. And, you know, we go through the process of figuring out, you know, you need to establish if you're going to be a side sleeper, back sleeper, belly sleeper, or all over sleeper. And, you know, most people like a relaxed bag. You just have to keep in mind if you're going from a mummy style to a relaxed or um, a quilt or even like the bag that you were talking about, you've got with the, the sheet, you know, some of those are extra wide. You're going to lose your efficiency of staying warm because of cold spots. You know, it's not as tight to your body and figuring out what works for you and what your style of sleeping is. So that way you can get a bag 
that's comfortable. Because in the end, you need to sleep well at night if you're going to be riding all day the next day. We're taking a short break here. Well, I've got a couple of things I want to tell you about. But when we come back, we're going to talk more camping gear. And then we're going to talk about what Ben feels is the five top mistakes that motorcycle campers make. Stay with us. Heidi and David Winters developed through necessity, actually, while they were on their round-the-world trip uh, riding two up. Yes, they're riders just like you. They poured their heart and soul into this. And and in the end, this is something that has changed the lives of, uh, I don't know, countless riders uh, that are they're using the Atlas Throttle Lock now. Now, I remember one time riding across Canada, going through the prairies, and it, w- it was beautiful weather. I mean, everything was great. It was really stunning country to look around. But I mean, it's like you spot a tree, it would take three days to pass the tree. It was that flat. Okay. Slightly embellished. But anyway, I remember desperately needing a break from my riding position. There wasn't anything really wrong. I was just tired of being in that riding position and having loads of miles to go that I wanted to cover. I didn't have the Atlas throttle lock. I would have loved to have had it because uh, your throttle hand just gets sort of tired of being in that exact same position mile after mile. Now, I did have another style of lock that frustrated me to no end because it just kept backing off gradually from vibration. So it was, an, it was just an exercise in frustration. Well, now I have the Atlas throttle lock and it never fails me. This thing is made like a Swiss watch. It clamps onto your handlebar in a few minutes, but it feels like it was designed for your bike. There's two buttons on it, one for engage, one for disengage. They offer firm, positive feedback when you press them. And there's no mistake about what you're doing with this thing. And when you need to slightly adjust your speed, you just simply twist the throttle. It holds the new position. You want to slow it down a bit, you back the throttle off. It holds the new position. This thing is a beautiful addition to your motorcycle. AtlasThrottleLock.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. AtlasThrottleLock.com. See and be seen. That's the motto at Cyclops Adventure Sports. Cyclops makes all kinds of lighting products, especially designed for us riders. From auxiliary lighting to LED headlights to especially things like their Evo safety turn signals. These I love. Um, I have them on my bike. The Evo safety turn signal inserts, um, they, they replace your stock turn signals front and back. And, you know, most most stock to turn signals, they only come on when you put your signal on. They're not actually driving lights. So these become driving lights in the front. They're super bright white driving lights. In the back, they're red. Uh, in the front, they turn orange and become signals when you put your signal on. And in the back, they also signal, but when you they, uh, they signal in red and they come on with your brakes and they are stunningly bright. Like talk about seeing, being seen. These things punch holes through the darkness and they command attention in the daytime. So making drivers aware of you is obviously a huge part of road safety. The Evo safety turn signal inserts. I'm going to give you the website for it. While you're there at the website, have a look at the Cyclops Adventure Sports Aurora 2-inch auxiliary lights. These little things, these are small enough to fit just about anywhere on any bike because a lot of bikes you have trouble fitting the lights in. These little things will fit in anywhere and they are powerhouses. Great for daytime awareness and stunning on a dark road. CyclopsAdventureSports.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. CyclopsAdventureSports.com. 
you know, there's so many products that look the part, feel the part, but when you, you get them home, the cheapness, you know, starts to seep out. You've had them. Parts fall off and break and the performance is not there. Why is that, you ask? You know the answer. Because the company's all about selling and that's it. They have no skin in the game, so to speak. So when I say IMS Products makes incredible foot pegs for us adventure riders, that is what I mean. IMS Products has been around since 1976. And the whole time, they produce top-notch products and get better all the time, of course, because they use everything they've learned up until now on the product they're making for tomorrow. IMS Products is on almost every podium finisher's motorcycle in off-road racing. And there's a reason for that. It's quality. IMS Products foot pegs are designed specifically for adventure riders. They're made in the USA. They have a lifetime warranty. You can't beat that. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them on Adventure Rider Radio. That's a good point. Well, it's no wonder it's so confusing for people when they're getting into camping, figuring out uh, what gear to get. Okay, so we talked about choosing the location. We talked about shelter, sleeping comfort, and we're not covering everything here. We're covering some basics of motorcycle camping. Water, you're going to have to, you're going to be able to carry water, but you're going to be limited in what sort of water you can carry. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because we talked before about the, the commercial, staying at a commercial campground, usually many times they'll have water. With wild camping, you're going to have to supply your own water. So you're going to have to use what you carry, or you're going to have to get some from some river or, or a lake or whatever. So you'll, you're going to have to figure that out. There certainly is filtration systems. Uh, I imagine you, you're dealing with filtration systems. Yes. Filtering water and treating water. So with filtration, what you're saying is the difference between the two. Filtration is reverse osmosis, filtering of the water, which will get down to a certain size. It'll tell you the micron size in the filter. And then the water treatment is that's chemicals you're pouring in, which you don't want to do long term. Obviously, I think most of them will say that to treat the water. And um, you can use both of them at the same time if you want. Like if you thought the water was marginal, I would certainly be using both. I'd be filtering and treating. Oh, I'd be boiling it too. Yeah, that's a very good point too. So, so that's a, that's the last resort, right? You can boil the water as well. And think about your elevation for boiling water. You might want to look this up online, the uh, the t- the time that you should be boiling water for, et cetera. And I was going to mention about clear water. Often um, you get to the north, you get into Canada, you're going to find a lot of rivers that, that move slow and they'll be uh, brownish. They'll have a tannin in it from the, the bark of trees and it's fine. It's just the color of the water. Yeah. So. And I've filtered water that's been kind of, like you said, a little darker brown. Mm-hmm. And after it's filtered, I mean, it's it's crystal clear and you can't taste anything. The taste yeah. is fantastic. Yeah. Well, that's water, food. You're going to have to figure out some sort of food, of, uh, what you're, what you're going to eat. And this, this is so wide. I mean, I don't know if we really want to dig into this very much <laughs> because there's so much to it. I, the only thing that I would say from from experience with motorcycle camping is when you pack your bike, Make sure you leave room. It should be like an 80-20 rule in my mind. You know, you should only use 80% of your of your packing space. And everybody uses like, what, 140? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think, I think 80% because nothing is worse than going into, you're, you're on your ride, you stop into the store to grab some food and you come out with just like a handful of food and you have no place to put it because you have so much piled onto your bike. So, um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean- well, and like you said, when you get into food, there's so many different ways because, again, you can go to um, dehydrated foods. I mean, quick, easy. They're light. They're small. I mean, backpackers have been using them for years, right? Yeah. Um, 
you can even go with, you know, instead of doing dehydrated meals, you can do, you know, cans of spam or the spam packets, tuna packets, cans of tuna, um, <laughs> deviled ham, <laughs> uh, <laughs> any of like the little, you know, I mean, it's really high in preservatives, but there's all those instant, you know, instant rice and all those instant foods out there that aren't necessarily dehydrated foods. You just got to heat it up. And, and I did that for years, like spam and rice and, you know, spam rice and beans and stuff in the little, uh, ready rice packets instead of dehydrated meals. Um, because, you know, sometimes the dehydrated meals don't taste that great. Um, but then, you know, that makes like a great breakfast and lunch kind of setup if you're not eating out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in the evenings, we will typically run by the grocery store on the way back to camp. If we set up a base camp or, or however we're doing it and we'll grab fresh meat, fresh vegetables, whatever. And we've got enough, you know, we've got like a pan and a pot that we can cook and some tin foil. And we'll grab, you know, a steak and cook it on the grill or cook it over an open fire and then cook some potatoes and some vegetables and actually have a, a nice home cooked meal at camp. Mm. Um, so you can eat really good. And especially if you've got dietary restrictions and concerns, there's always a way to be able to pack what you need on the bike. Um, even if you have like a really small, tiny cooler, if you have to, to keep your, your food fresh. And the thing is, we're on motorcycles. You have to stop for gas. You're not getting that far without fuel. So you don't have to carry, it's not like you're on a canoe trip. You don't have to carry all your food with you for 10 days or whatever it is. You, you shop as you go, right? Like you're saying, you're on your way to camp. You'd stop into a store and, and grab some fresh stuff. It makes it a lot nicer to, um, to eat that way for sure. And I was going to mention that, but the, um, the, the dehydrated meals, some of them are actually very tasty, but the thing is they're really expensive. And, and if you're going to do that, I mean, Hey, if money's no object for you, then go ahead, but they can really add up fast. I mean, I, th- I kind of think they're, um, well, they're pushing $10 a meal or something, are they? Yeah. So we've got some of the, um, single packs are five to $8 for like a 350 calorie meal. Mm -hmm. And then the double pack is like a 800 calorie meal, you know, and it's maybe 14, $15. Um, and that that gets expensive if you're doing that every dinner. Exactly. And, and so, yeah, it's trying to find the balance of that versus eating out. Cause you know, eating out can be expensive too. You hit fast food and fast food's not getting any cheaper. Yeah. Now, as far as cooking gear goes, I mean, you can certainly cook on an open fire. That that takes some some skill and some practice, but it's a lot of fun and it makes great food. I'm sure you're a, a fan of that. And the and the other thing would be to carry a stove. And there's all kinds of stoves out there. We've talked about this on the on the raw show about um, the different stoves that are available. But you can get stoves that will burn gasoline. So it's just something to consider if, if you're looking at stoves. Um, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, yeah, there's tons of different fuel types out there. Cause you've got what the white fuel, the alcohol stoves. I mean, when I first started camping, I actually took and made a, um, the tin can into a alcohol stove. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like just that. because it was really cheap. And then I went and bought some denatured alcohol and, and carried it around with me. Um, that, that's really but, neat, but you, you can, you can buy the Trangia stove for, oh, I don't, it's, it's like $20. Uh, something like oh, that. Yeah. That that's the stove that you're sort of building when you're making the out of the beer can or pop can or whatever. Um, for like twenty dollars, it's just a very simple little little cup with some holes in it, and where you you burn your alcohol. And um, yeah, quite a, quite a good setup. Yeah, it's not very efficient though. It it um, I think it took like five minutes to boil water, 
and it was a very slow boil. It wasn't even really, yeah, yeah it's not great. Um, but now down here where we're at, I mean, there's enough stores locally that stock the isobutane. So, you know, that's your, for your jet boils and, and all your different, you know, camp stoves that just screw onto that canister. It's the most efficient and quickest way to, to boil water. If you're just wanting to make, you know, dehydrated meals or coffee. Mm -hmm. Um, but even so the, the jet boil stuff is got regulators on it. So that way you can simmer and able to cook on a pan and, and control your heat. And to me, that's just the most convenient way to go. For somebody who's wanting to cook at camp, just go with the isobutane. Um, you can go with the propane, you know, the little one pound green propane cylinders. Mm -hmm. Uh, but then you're getting into a bigger stove and there's a lot more weight and, um, yeah. The, I mean, the downside is of course you've got the cans. They're not good for the environment, obviously, but I was going to ask though, the, the convenience is huge. And like you're saying, simmering, you know, if you're really cooking a meal, nothing beats being able to simmer your stove, obviously, otherwise you're going to eat burnt stuff. But, um, how long do you find those cans last? Um, I can make a can last a three day weekend and oh, that's wow. usually, um, it's the, I'm trying to think what it is, the hundred gram. I'm trying to remember what size it is. It's the middle size can. I can't remember off the top of my head right now. Hmm. Um, one of the normal standard cans I can make of isobutane. I can make last for a weekend and that's cooking for two. So that's, um, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for three days. And that's coffee, boiling water, simmering and cooking steaks and, potatoes and, and whatever. Um, that's and, pretty good. Yeah. So do you carry two with you or do you, are you that confident that you just take the one if you're going out for a weekend? If I've got a full one, I'll take just one. Cause I know I can get through the weekend without running out. Um, but I'll generally carry two cause I never have a full one. <laughs> <laughs> I've only got like half a one and then like, or a third of one and then a full one with me. So I usually carry two with me unless I take the big jumbo, um, canister. Um, so yeah. Um, and to your point, like you said earlier about the other types of stoves out there are, oh, I'm trying to think of the brand now. Was it the whisper light? I think is from MSR. MSR, yeah. Um, and then there's another brand out there. I can't think of the top of my head. Th they've got those where you're using liquid fuel and they're great for anybody who's doing like world traveling or just, you don't really know where you're going to be. Because you're using, you can use fuel, you can use diesel, you can use white gas, you can even use the isobutane because you turn it upside down. So instead of using the the vapor from the isobutane, you're actually using the liquid from the isobutane oh, I didn't know to that. run the stove. And those are great because you've, you'll have to change out your orifice and, and change out, you know, how you're using it. But like, like you said, you, if you're out in the middle of nowhere and you need to cook something, you can use the gas from your bike. Yeah. Yeah. And they, and they have specific jets for that, for burning gasoline. It does, it right. is stinky. I, I've done it lots and it is definitely, there's, <laughs> there's downsides, downsides because it's not only like people often think, well, I'll have to deal with the stink while it's burning. Well, not just when it's burning. It's when you put it in the bag and then put it in your bag, it's, it's gasoline, right? And, and you know, that, that odor just stays there. So it tends to permeate through things. So you, you want to consider that. It's a great option though, because obviously you have fuel on your bike. So if you run out, but it's not like you're going to starve to death. You're on a motorcycle. <laughs> you know, like, right. Even if you didn't have food for your net for the night, you're not going to starve to death. 
Yeah. And it's not like you can, you know, like you said, jump on the bike and get out of there and be somewhere for civilization to get food within an hour. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, so, so keep that in mind. Don't get too gung ho because we have a real problem with packing too much stuff. Us motorcyclists. That's a, that's a serious issue. But the, the other thing that I wanted to mention here was um, toilet. So here's the thing when it comes to dealing with waste, poop waste, the bottom line is that it's no longer acceptable to bury your poop. We used to dig a, a cat hole and bury the poop and burn the paper or pack out the paper. But now there's just simply in most areas, there's just too much traffic in wilderness places. The poop doesn't even have enough time to break down and more comes in all the time, of course. So now you have to use the pack it in, pack it out method. I know it sounds crazy carrying our poop out on our motorcycles, but where there is demand, um, there are companies clamoring to fill the void. So many companies have completely biodegradable bags that are easy to store and set up just for this purpose. And you can transport them with you. We've got some links and videos in the show notes for this episode at adventureriderradio.com. So Check out your options. It's it's an easy thing to do, and many places are are requiring it now. Mm-hmm. Now, the other thing that I will add with that is staying clean is really important and sometimes difficult for people when they're camping. Wet wipes are really handy for cleaning that area if you're you're not getting in and washing somewhere, and, and you shouldn't be washing in streams or in lakes anyway because that just puts it into the lake and the stream. So wet wipes are very handy to, to use for that. They're disposable. Again, you take them, you throw them in the garbage, though. They won't burn, so don't even try. Uh, and don't leave them in the campfire. I guess that goes for, we, we should probably just throw this in here, too, about people leaving garbage in their campfire trying to burn tins. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we can go back to the whole leave no trace and pack it in, pack it out method. Right. I mean, you we really need to hit on that so people going outdoors aren't trashing everything. Like you said, the wet wipes, they may say they're biodegradable and all this. Yeah, Most people it. have a Ziploc bag with them, especially if you've got food or whatever else. Pack it in, pack it out, take it out with you. Like you said, take your toilet paper out with you. Um, and, and depending on where you're going, because um, I've recently saw an article from out west. Was it Arizona? So they're having an issue, again, because everybody's going outdoors and everybody's pooping outdoors that the desert area doesn't have enough flow, I guess, to, to break up everything properly. And so now you're getting into people in certain areas where you go, you're required to have a, uh, a poop bag, I guess is what Mm -hmm. you want to call it. You actually poop in a bag and you seal it up and it's got all like the, the kind of like the diaper material, I guess, in there to kind of keep it, Sanitary turns into more of a gel. Yeah. Yeah. And then you seal it up and then you throw it away. And, and that's just to keep prevent, like you said, so that way it's not getting into water sources and it's not getting into trails and it's not getting into animals and, and into the ecosystem. Yeah. So I, I, I want to put this to you then. What do you think are the first mistakes that motorcycle campers make? Um, I would have to say it's packing too much stuff packing too much stuff. So th- this is one that we've talked about many times uh, on the show and on raw packing too much stuff. So do you have some sort of tip on how not to pack too much stuff? My, for people who are first getting started, I generally tell them go with the very basics. You know, if you've never been camping before and you're just going to try it out, get your bed, your sleep system, your, your shelter, and just go out for a night and keep it simple. 
take um, some snacks and maybe some water with you, but pack just the bare minimum and don't go that far from home. I mean, even if you want to you go in your backyard just to try it out, but find or find a campground that's like close to your house um, and or a spot that you can go camp and get a feel for it. And then that way you really know what it's like to go camping. And then you can kind of build on it from there. Because even I, the first time I went camping, was like, okay, well, I need four pairs of underwear, three shirts, two pants, and and all this stuff, you know. And I didn't really need all that extra stuff. You don't need a hatchet. You don't need a um, a saw, you know, to cut up wood necessarily. You know, you need to slowly build up your kit because you can accommodate all of these. Or I should say, you you can accumulate all of this extra stuff that you don't need and you get out there and then you realize you don't need it. Um, so best practice is to build up instead of start with everything and then cutting back down. That is great advice. I, I really like that. So yeah, that, it makes much more sense to do that. Figure out what you, what you miss, what you think you really need rather than sorting out what you, what you took than what you used and didn't use. But having said that, when you're done your trip, it is a good exercise to go through your panniers and say, what did I not use? on this trip and then think about, do I really need it? You know, and obviously there's some things that you will take anyway, because you may not use them, but you may need them, you know, the toolkit, et cetera, et cetera. But there are some things that you'll find you took and you think, well, you know, I I just don't need that. I'm not, I'm not going to take that again. Some people may find a a use for a chair. Others may not, or, or those type of things. Great advice, build it up rather than building it down. And that certainly is a lot easier. Now, um, what do you think the next, the next mistake is? Well, um, not taking enough. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a second. That just goes against what you said. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's counterintuitive, right? Um, so you don't want to take too much stuff because then you, you get into, uh, you're trying to plan for every scenario and you will end up with this huge load of gear. Right. But you need to take all your basics without getting overly packed and having too much extra stuff because you're trying to accommodate every situation that you can think of in your head and you want to avoid that. Um, but you want to take enough stuff to cover everything. So, you know, a med kit is like, to me is something you should take with you no matter what, because you never, that is one of those precautionary, like planning ahead moments. You just want to make sure you've got, you know, a bandaid or something to, to cover up a cut just in case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's those things that are insurance that maybe your, your locator, your spot or your Zolio or your in reach or whatever it is, those type of things. But your basics are, are really your shelter, your sleeping comfort, your water and your toilet and then food, of course. But like, like we said, you'll survive without food. I mean, if you took some, you know, some, I don't know, dried sausages with you or something like that and, and had to eat a cold dried sausage dinner, it's not going to kill you. You'll survive. Just make sure you've covered those basics, the, the shelter, the sleeping comfort, that you've got some water and you've got toilet stuff. Yeah, absolutely. That covers everything. What else? What else? What other sort of mistakes? Um, kind of like we said about not taking enough stuff is not planning. So you're not planning for your trip. Um, again, East coast, there's a lot of people going out camping. And so if you're not really scoping out your campsite or not planning where you're going or not knowing where you're going, um, 
or just even having a general idea of what you're doing throughout the day. Like if you're going for a ride and you know, you're going to end up in a certain area, you may end up without a camping site. Mm-hmm. And so trying to plan ahead and make sure you're going to areas that, you know, for very popular areas, uh, knowing that you're going to actually have access to be able to get to a campsite and planning your route, checking the weather, checking the area, making sure that you're not getting stuck in the middle of a, you know, terrible storm. Um, and again, with the weather and the temperature, making sure your gear accommodates the weather that you're going to be camping in. Cause you could easily start at one elevation, be planning on going up and not think too much about that until you're actually doing it and find it gets colder. Or you might go to the desert and think, Oh, it's so hot during the day, but then it gets cold at night. So you want, this is part of your planning process that you're talking about. Think about where you're headed if you can and, and think, uh, plan accordingly for the conditions. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I'm here in central North Carolina. It's 95 degrees during the day, but then up in the mountains, it's 75 and it dips down into the sixties at night, even during the summertime. And especially if you're like in a Valley. So, you know, if you've got a sleeping bag that's rated for 60 degrees, cause it's summertime and you go out there, you're probably going to be cold at night. Yeah. I remember this, this one story always sticks in my head of, of a, a woman who showed up for a trip. Uh, this is a wilderness trip, a kayaking trip. And she showed up with wearing her bikini uh, as, as paddling gear. And I said, well, no, you can't wear that. You know, you, you've got to have something, you've got to have more gear than that. We, we talked about it, but she was insistent that she says, I'm fine. And I said, you're fine now because we're standing here on shore. But the moment we get on the ocean and start paddling along the strait, you're going to freeze. This is, this is not appropriate gear. And finally I had to put my foot down and say, look, you're not going in, unless you get some appropriate gear. And she didn't bring any rain gear or anything. So she was very ticked off, but also very grateful one day into the trip when she realized the conditions are, are different. And what she told me, she says, you know, it was really hard. I, forget, I think she kind of thinks she came from Calgary. And she said, it's really hard to imagine that anything is different than what you're in already. And, and it was a really good point. She said, I'm packing at home and I'm thinking it's warm out. It's summertime. I'll be fine with this. You know, but but it's tough to imagine that what those conditions are going to be. And a little more research would have showed her that well, the ocean cools things and it's much wetter on the coast, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a good point because I think a lot of people do forget that, especially who've never been camping or never been up at a higher elevation, you know, that realize how drastically the temperature can change and the weather. Mm-hmm. What's another one? Another uh, first mistake? Checking your gear. Testing it. Mm, the old shakedown trip. Yes. Yes. You, you've got to, <laughs> it's funny how many people actually buy gear and then go out and have never opened it until they get to camp. And, and it surprises me. And I tell everybody, make sure you test it, like check it out before you go. You have to do this because I mean, it's manufacturing with gear. You're, you are going to have defects. It happens in the world. So make sure that you test your gear and make sure everything works the way it's supposed to. And even if it does work, you may realize that it doesn't fit you. The sleeping bag may be a little bit too snug. It may be too loose. Um, the pad may be uncomfortable. You know, if you're able to go to a place and you're able to test out the gear beforehand, that's even better because that way, you know, at least you, you know what you're getting. Um, but still, when you get it home, open it all up, check it all out, test it and then pack it and then unpack it. And then repack it <laughs> and, and put it on your bike and ride with it. This, this is another serious issue that people have they'll buy the gear and they don't actually put it on their bikes. And what I, I've done so much is I have all my camping gear on my bike for day rides 
And I, I always figure, well, it just depends on where I'm going, but just in case, and I don't do this all the time, but I've done this lots. And I figure, well, if something happens, I'm covered. But it also lets you feel what the bike feels like. It, 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 um, it shows you what works, what sits in spot, what shifts loose, what breaks open, all those type of things. It's important. That shakedown trip, I, I agree. I think it's just so, so important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Make sure everything's heavy is down low because... Yeah, you'll you'll feel the difference in the how top heavy it can get. Yeah. And some of those shakedown trips also will like if it's just a day trip and you take all your camping gear, you might when you get back decide, I don't need this, I don't need that, I don't need this. Without <laughs> without going through, you know, your five day or two week camping trip that you've you've planned and then finding out that you've got to, I don't know, mail something home. Right. Do you have another one after this? Uh not cooking. Because I mean, for me personally like I said before, camping is Zen. And so getting out there and enjoying the outdoors and like, I really enjoy cooking at camp uh, almost more than cooking at home. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I agree. There's just something about it, isn't there? That just being outside and yeah, it's, it's a beautiful time and take advantage of it. Absolutely. And being able to, to cook and just enjoy the outdoors. And I mean, it's a, a skill to learn how to cook over an open fire. And even if you have a stove with you, you, you can learn how to cook with that as well. But it's, it, it's like a, it's a different taste, you know, to the food, mm-hmm. um, a different experience. And it, it makes it worthwhile. It's enjoyable. Gives you a little bit of entertainment to hang out, you know, and, and, you know, make sure you bring friends with you. That's, that's a good one too. Yeah. That's uh, well advised not to travel by yourself. That's great, Ben. Well, well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk this through with me. And of course, I love camping, so I love camping gear and talking about camping. So to me, it's uh, you know this has been a great time talking to you about it. Thanks very much, Ben. Absolutely, Jim. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me on, and it's really cool to see your ideas as well because I know everybody, like I said before, everybody camps differently. So hearing everybody's ideas interesting because then it's just more tips and tricks to get out to everybody in the motor camping world. So that way everybody knows that there's not a real right or wrong way to do things. It's just you do what works for you. That was Ben Williams from motocampnerd.com in Archdale, North Carolina. We've got some photos of Ben and uh, some bunch of camping photos, as well as some links and videos to the things we talked about today, including those bags we talked about for hauling out your waste. All that in the show notes for this episode on our website, adventureriderradio.com. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. that I won't wrap 
wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course to you, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of this. There's a bunch of different ways you can help out the show if you'd like to. We would really appreciate it if you would. One would be to share it. You can share it on social media, share it with your friends, tell other people about the show. It just helps people learn about it. The other way is to become a supporter. AdventureRiderRadio.com forward slash support or just click on the support button. There's a bunch of different ways you can do it. You can get an Adventure Rider Radio sticker. You can become a patron supporter, which we would really appreciate if you do that. Come on and be a monthly patron supporter and there's some perks for that. Anyway, all at the website, AdventureRiderRadio.com. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate it. And I will talk to you next week. I'm Ed March from c90adventures.co.uk and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. <laughs> <laughs>